My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. The professor from the back of the room says, hey, Abza, where the heck are your mother's balls? I said, Dr. Kanakalin, I wasn't aware that she had any balls. Hello and welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves. Today kicks off a three-part series commemorating the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. This first episode is an interview with Liz Abzug. She's the daughter of Bella Abzug. Bella served three terms in Congress and she was a key figure in the women's movement in the 1970s. She was one of very few women to get a law degree in the 1940s, and she had a deep commitment not just to women's rights, but to civil rights, and she was well ahead of her time in advocating for gay rights. She died in 1998, and yes, she often wore a hat. Liz Abzug is the founder and executive director of the Bella Abzug Leadership Institute, Liz Abzug, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your amazing mother. You're welcome. To start off, if you had one word to describe your mother, what would it be? And it can't be hat. It wouldn't be hat. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Outstanding. Yeah. As in a standout and outstanding. Right. Right? Exactly. I like that. So let's jump right in to her life. She was born July 24th, 1920. Mm-hmm. She would have celebrated her 100th birthday this past July. And it also happens to coincide with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Yes, she was very proud to be born in 1920, the year that suffrage and women uh, won the right to vote. So she was born in New York? Yes, in the Bronx. In the Bronx. And her, uh, tell me about her parents. And her, um, her maiden name was? Savitsky. 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 Mm-hmm. Her parents were Russian immigrants. Her father was a character, both of them actually very strong. Um, the father opened up a business called the Live and Let Live Meat Market on 9th Avenue and 39th Street, which was pretty funny. So in, speaking of which, why, that's a segue straight into this first clip, which is um, the Harvey Firestein play that he produced in Rue. And, and that I was a consulting producer and worked with him over a year it is. I was laughing so hard last night, and I was playing yeah. uh, clips for yeah. my husband. So I'm. I've just queued up this uh, this one little clip that takes place in 1976. Uh, it was the Democratic primary for Senate. For United, right? yeah, for United States Senate. She was the first woman to run for U.S. Senate in New York. She lost by just a hair, and the entire play takes place when she's waiting for the results, and she basically gives the audience her entire life story. I would advise people to run, not walk to their computer and download this. It's an audible original. Here we go. You may not consider the Bronx a haven for political activism, but where do you think revolutions begin? I was raised to fight the establishment. Resistance was in my blood. We wore black armbands to protest World War I. I knit woolen caps for Russian soldiers. 
when my father opened his butcher shop in Hell's Kitchen in an act of protest against the imperialist powers of World War I, he named the place the Live and Let Live Meat Market. <laughs> yeah. So that, and uh, um, let me, can I just add something here? Please do. Many of the lines are based on her exact lines. In other words, her exact statements or exact quips that he used and integrated into his great, um, you know, script. And the live and let live meat market. So remind me what live and let live refers to. Well, he was, he felt guilty in a way about having a business on one hand. I mean, my, my grandparents came here thinking that the pathway for um, Jewish people, they should have equal access and uh, as well as all other immigrant and minority groups. And so I think that he was sort of feeling guilty about setting up a, a for-profit business. But on the other hand, uh, he knew uh, that he had to do it. And I think he just liked uh, the irony of the name. He was a funny guy, my grandfather. He's a funny guy. I didn't know him. He died before I was born because um, mm. he died early on when my mother was 13 years old. But And how um, how about your grandmother? Did you know her? Oh, I knew her very well. She died in my second year of law school. She was quite uh, the driven, uh, you know, she raised both of her kids, my mother and my aunt, as a single parent, got them both to go to Columbia, my mother to Columbia Law my aunt to the fine arts program at Columbia, but she was very driven and she drove them to be the best that they could be in all aspects of their lives. And this brings us to the second clip. You were just segueing perfectly for me. This is from Harvey too. This I just love. Here we go. She made lunch for me to take every day of law school, an entire pound of liverwurst between two slices of bread. And you eat it all, you need the iron. On graduation day, I stood before her, so proud in my cap and gown. She smiled and said, Ay, lawyers work so hard. Betty, you should have been an actress. <laughs> so your your grandmother basically raised your mother and her sister to be the best they could be. And your mother... She thought the only way to change the world was to be a lawyer. Is that that's, right? That's correct. So she applies to Harvard Law School. They said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't take women. So then she got a full scholarship to Columbia. Um, that's right. That's right. Okay. So your parents got married in 1944. And your mom met your dad, Martin Abzug, who your mother, as played by Harvey, likes to call my darling Martin. They met on a bus in Miami. That's correct. <laughs> and my and my father, they were both on a bus in Miami, both on break vacation from their various lives. And my father started reciting Shakespearean poetry to my mother. I mean, he fell in love kind of with her at first sight. My mother thought he was totally crazy to be doing that. But somehow he managed to get, I guess, at the end of the, the bus ride, her number, you know, to call her after that. Mm. And it sounds like it was a just a wonderful love affair from beginning to end. Yes, it was. I mean, they um, were soulmates, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, it was intellectually an emotional soul connection. And he was incredibly, obviously, supportive of her career, as she was at, for in, of his as a writer, mm -hmm. a novelist, and then, you know, a, a finance guy, a stockbroker. Yeah, it, I read somewhere that um, 
he once said, you know, this politics stuff is kind of Greek to me, but um, absolutely supported her 1000%. Yes, he did. Well, actually, let's, um, let's, before I ask you about your childhood, I wanted to, we've got to sort of get in and out of the hats pretty quickly. And it cannot go unaddressed. (laughs) Uh, um, But this is a fun, this is a funny way to do it, which is um, in the Harvey Firestein play, he uh, or she um, talks about what appear to be um, the origins of the hats. I'd say, hello, I'm Bella Abzug. I'm here with the law firm of so-and-so. And then we'd sit in silence. Again, I'd say, hello, I'm Bella Abzug. I'm with the law firm of so-and-so. Yes, we heard you. We're waiting for the lawyer. Well, at that time, only 2% of the bar was women. So to them, I must have been a secretary or a clerk. But then my darling Martin suggested that a secretary would never appear in a hat and gloves. Only a professional woman would. So from then on, if I was on duty, I wore a hat and gloves. Believe me, no one tells a woman wearing a hat and gloves to fetch them a cup of coffee. You ask Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> the, the only thing is what he leaves <laughs> out there, what he leaves out there is that the line and truth, which he always said is, I kept the hat on in subsequent years, but I took off the gloves. <laughs> Clearly, she was a role model. Um, sure was, yeah. So tell me what it was like to be a kid in that household. And so the first 13 years mm-hmm. of my life, I lived, we lived in Mount Vernon, New York, which is an inter uh, integrated suburb, you know, bedroom community of New York. And so everybody there, my friends, most of their mothers never worked. It, it, you know, mothers who took care of the house and the children and so when my parents both were commuting into the city every day and my mother wasn't there, they were really uh, sort of surprised and they used to make fun of it in a way because we also at that time, in order to, to really run the household, we had a housekeeper who was more like a second mother to me who lived with us for 21 years actually from the time she started. And Alice, she was a big you know, African-American woman from the South so the kids would see her calling me for dinner and they would say, you know, who is that? They uh, really, you know, sort of couldn't get over that. My mother, you know, wasn't there and around, um, you know, every day. I knew I had a mother that was definitely not like every other mother uh, of my friends or and, and, and many mothers, even beyond my own friends' mothers. You know, she was very unusual and I knew. This is something different I had to deal with. What year did she first uh, decide to run for Congress? 1970. It was 6970 because obviously she ran in 70. She had been supporting all these different men in very significant ways. And she said, why should I do that? I should, you know, take the position myself and craft legislation and fight for the people. You know, I'd like to play something where we hear a little bit of her own words. It's a neighborhood rally or speech that she's giving. Here we go. The woman's movement is something real. It's not some intellectual upper middle class thing that people try to make it. It's our problems. It's ours. It's us. It's our today. And more than today, it's our tomorrow. We come together for today because we have to build a tomorrow for ourselves, for our neighborhoods, and for our kids and their neighborhoods and their hopes. 
and their future in the neighborhood, in the city, in the state, and in the country. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And to say this is our this is our future. We need to do this for our kids. Yeah. Well, the one thing, many things, but one of the things that was so great about my mother is that she was always ahead of her time. She was prescient about things. She also believed that the future must be better than current or past, and that she wanted to make sure that particularly youth and others would be inheriting a planet where they could then you know, fight for and complete the movement of social justice and feminism. And she was really that way. That's why she always had a lot of young people around her working for her until mm-hmm. the end of her life, you know. Mm-hmm. In watching the, the series uh, Mrs. America, Episode 7, which is titled Bella, she comes across as very much the peacemaker, kind of this diplomatic approach. That was the sense I got from it. Yeah. That's, and that is true. That depiction was totally true. I mean, what was left at Margot Martindale did a great job and she studied hard. I mean, I can tell you that she really studied her mannerisms, my mother's walk. That segment did capture that part of my mother trying to bring everybody together mm-hmm. and in the w- women's movement in particular, uh, because there was always, you know, some dissension among the ranks. And so she was very good at that because she was very intelligent and perceptive about how you can, right. you know, you need to bring everybody together to create change. You need to be mm-hmm. someone who pulls people together and to be a leader. Um, in this little segment, um, she goes to Gloria Steinem's place and your mother starts to talk about um, about the Willie McGee case. Why don't you uh, describe the Willie McGee case and then I'll... This case totally um, informed the rest of her life, politically, movement-wise, as a leader in the feminist movement. And here's what the case was. Don't forget, when she did this, she had just graduated Columbia. She was probably, you know, 26, uh, seven years old, and she was newly practicing lawyer. And what happened is this group, National Civil Rights Group, called the Civil Rights Congress, came to her. They had heard that this young, upstart, incredible lawyer who was arguing, you know, great, litigating great cases on labor law and some civil rights stuff. They came to her and they said, would you go to the South? Because we need someone to represent a black man, that was Willie McGee, who was accused of raping a white woman who he had a consensual relationship with. Uh, and my mother said to them at first, I can't go to the South. I know nothing about it. And they said, yeah, but you are an incredible litigator. You really care about civil rights for blacks. Uh, and you need to go. We need you. Because the local lawyers there were all getting very harassed. You know, he had local lawyers. This was Laurel, Mississippi. It was the height of Jim Crow. And the white lawyers who were representing Willie down there lived down there. And they, they were afraid for their lives. So... For the appeal, they brought, you know, mom came in and she worked with the lawyer, the local lawyers, and she stayed on that case for four years. When she went there to get to go into court to represent him, right, she would go back and forth to New York to, to Laurel. The local people would not even give her a hotel room because they knew she was this, you know, white Jewish lawyer from the north coming down to represent Willie. So one night she even had a sit up in the in the bathroom stall of a bus station, a women's bathroom stall to 
set up in there because she couldn't get a hotel room. And she next morning, you know, got up, washed her face and hands and went into court to to represent him. It was a really hard time for her. And uh, another part of it was that she at one point she was eight months pregnant and near the end of the case. um, She argued that case up to the state court, to the Supreme Court of the United States Supreme Court. She, they wrote a petition of exoneration to the then President Truman, which he rejected. The case was remanded to the state court and then the local court, and he, he was uh, executed. But one of the times that my mother was really involved in the case, she had been pregnant, eight months pregnant, and she actually had a miscarriage, eight months, because she was so, you know, shaken apart. And my father was, of course, very, very scared. Because he thought every time she went down there, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, we're going to get her. Well, let's play this clip. This is Margot Martindale as your mother talking to Gloria Steinem. I was eight months pregnant when I went down to Jackson. It was the first Supreme Court petition I'd ever written. It was my first trip to the South. It was the first time I got a death threat. They said Willie McGee's white woman lawyer should be executed along with him in the electric chair. The whole time I was scheduled I lost the baby. Stress, the doctor said. They got to me. So when you were a kid, did she push you uh, to do well or to do good? or To do good and to do well, absolutely. To fight for justice, social justice, and for positive change, always. always. To fight for what against what was injustice, always. To speak up against it, always. From a little kid, you know, that's why... I, <laughs> In fact, you know, in the old days back then, you had a, they did um, drills to, you know, ch- train the kids how to, uh, you know, if there was a nuclear bomb that was dropped, you know, how they used to tell kids go under your desk, which is ridiculous, ridiculous, totally ridiculous. And at one point they did it in my classroom or against the wall, you know, come out of the classroom, put your arms over your head and protect your head and stand, you know, flat against the wall. But they did this thing with the desks, you know, come, the teacher said, you know, go duck under your desk. And I got up and said, I'm not ducking under the desk. The desk is not going to save us if they drop a nuclear bomb here. And she brought me to the principal's office. And the principal called my mother and said, you know, this is what happened. You know, we want to suspend, you know, your kid. And my mother was laughing hysterically. And she said, don't be ridiculous. You're going to suspend her over something that she has the right to express. I mean, I think it's incredible. I think it's great. Oh. And if you do suspend her, I support. I'm still going to say the same thing. Remember, what's your earliest memory of what your parents believed in and fought for? Well, my mother represented a lot of the actors and writers um, when they went before the committee. The House, you know, when the Un-American House on Activities, Activities mm-hmm. Committee, yeah. And you know, she represented Pete Seeger. Uh, she even represented Einstein very briefly. He was called before the committee, and. You know, she also there was taking big risks because, um, you know, they were they would accuse probably accuse her of being communist. And they did actually uh, both of my parents at different times. Um, and In so fact, your mother had an FBI file and she was worried the CIA right. was tapping her phone. Right. Uh, Is- she was until the end of her life, by the way. She used to tell me. When we would talk about anything that was really personal or controversial, she said, or let's not talk on the phone about it. Wow. And I actually, I saw her FBI file because she got it under the Freedom of Information Act. So actually, uh-huh. 
uh, and which was part, her bill, by the way. The Freedom of Information Act was a bill that she introduced to the Congress that was passed in the Sunshine Law. Let me just say on behalf of every journalist I know, we thank you so much. And and she was the first with so many things. Um, I mean, she yeah. was the first to call for Nixon's impeachment, right? Um, that's right. That's right. She was just elected, newly elected to Congress. And in her second month, she stood on the Capitol steps to call for his impeachment, Nixon's impeachment over the war in Vietnam. That takes a lot of guts, man. Mm-hmm. You, know? you probably wouldn't have traded her for any other mother. Well, you know, later in life, when I was in college and, you know, publicity she was getting, that was not always great for my sister and I, I'll tell you. If you were, do, you know, doing the kids thing that you do in college, I mean, you know, uh, you had to be careful kind of what you were doing because you knew that, you know, it would get out eventually in some kind of article. And it wasn't just the celebrity, but also the political leanings you had to worry about those who didn't agree. Yeah, but my mother was, and father, okay, I'm going to leave him out here. No, we're darling Martin, enough, my darling, darling Martin. Darling Martin. Yeah, hey, I mean, you know, they were smart enough to know and, and committed enough to their, you know, lives and their po- political views uh, and the social justice views to transmit to us that, you know, you stand up for what you believe in. You know, you stick to your principles. You, it's okay as long as you're clear on it and you have integrity and the way you communicate it, you know, is with dignity and that you're not beating up on anybody else while you're doing it necessarily being, you know. So if someone was going to, as they did, you know, fight against what we were saying or dispute it or, you know, think poorly of it, I, you know, that's one thing my parents are very clear on and instilled in us that you just stand by what you believe and mm-hmm. you don't give up on your principles. You just don't. So is there something that you didn't realize about your mom until you were an adult? Uh, hmm. That's a hard question to answer, actually. Well, let me just help you along here. I, I think that, you know, when we're kids, they, they just loom so large. I don't know about you, but uh, I remember actually my father, who was a brilliant physicist and a uh, musicologist, and I just thought nothing could ever happen to him. And he said to me once that he was worried about cancer. And I thought, how could you? Because yeah. you're nothing can happen to you. I think that to me was epiphanous. And I've always sort of felt very bad about that, that right. I didn't want to allow him to be fallible in any way. Right. Or scared of anything. Right. So, I mean, my mother was a lot more sensitive than what she led everybody to believe, you know, mm-hmm. and as we got, as I got older and we got closer, uh, and she was hurt by a lot of things that were said to her. There's no question about it, but I don't think many people realize that, that she really suffered hurt when there was negativity lodged against her, uh, about her political views or her weight, you know, later in life. And she was very sensitive. Uh, And when my father died in 1986 in the middle of her last uh, political campaign for Congress, my father had a massive heart attack, right? And he died during that election before uh, the primary, right before she was, you know, going to be the primary. And she turned out to 
you know, be victorious in that. But she was devastated and never the same, by the way. Her friends always commented on it. She was just a different. It just impacted her so deeply. I mean, she couldn't function the same way. I mean, that was clear to us. What do you think she'd make of what's going on today? Uh, Dare I know, even bring it up? Yeah, really. You know, it's obvious. I mean, she would have been calling for his impeachment, by the way, right away, right away. I mean, mm-hmm. soon, probably in the first year of his presidency, before he got to be the dictator that, and crazy man that we see today. And she would have figured out, you know, other procedural ways in which to organize, you know, the Democrats and to try to push the investigations and to open up the records much faster because that's who she was. I mean, she was a brilliant tactician as a lawyer and otherwise. I wanted to ask you to tell me about what you do. I've been a lawyer. I was a professor for many years at Barnard in Columbia where I taught urban studies and women in leadership. And then a couple of years after my mother died in 1998, I said, I want to make a living legacy to all of her work. And so I formed a not-for-profit organization, which is named after her, called the Bell Labs of Leadership Institute, where we, where we train and try to inspire young women in high school, actually middle school, high school, and college, to grab the mantle of leadership. We train them in leadership skills and in debate because I wanted to carry on her work and my work as an activist, feminist, uh, gay rights person, you know, activist, to the next generation, to the current generation, and and have that last in their thinking and have them complete the work of, you know, equality. So she, she died in 1998. She was 77. Did, did you yeah. get to say goodbye to her? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she was uh, the story that is very important to know. She was the day before we took her to the hospitals, before she actually died a couple weeks later, she was in the UN making a speech in the, um, you know, to the delegation, actually to in before the secretariat on, you know, women's platform for action. And, you know, it was like an hour and a half speech. And as she continues this speech, you can hear that she's sort of not having, you know, her breath was compromised. Mm-hmm. So we took her out of there, right from there, the UN to the hospital. And she needed a valve replacement and she had needed it for a long time. And she said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I have too much work. I'm going to mm-hmm. leave. I know this. She told me her doctor, he said, you're not leaving. You have to have this now. Your oxygenation in your blood is so low that if you leave, you're going to die right away. So she then had the operation and she was in intensive care for two weeks after that. So the truth is we had a lot of time to say goodbye. She died too young, Katie. She died too young. You see, people in politics, you know, who worked like she did, you know, seven days a week, you know, these 18-hour days, it it really wore her down. Is there anything I haven't heard from you about what it was like to be the daughter of Bella Abzug that you might want to tell me? The pressure was high, you know. The expectations were very high for me. And when I was in law school... Mm-hmm. Very high, very hard. When I was in college, very, again, she was speaking at colleges all over the country, she even spoke to at my college. And the level, again, of expectation of my ability and studies uh, to excel, I mean, and to be kind of out there as an activist were mm-hmm. very high. Yeah. And in and, fact, mm-hmm. and on your sister, my sister, she's a sculptor. And now, uh, and for many, now for many years, she's been a social worker and a therapist. 
So, and she's a lot more introverted than I am. And so it was much harder for her even than me, you know, because she's a lot more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, internal and, you know, not so much into being in crowds or, you know, being out there. She certainly learned to be political and she certainly ex- respected my mother to the hundredth degree, but it, it wasn't her preference. Did you resent the pressure or did you just know it came with the territory? Both. Totally both. So much so that I was making a little in a class, a political science class in college, and each kid in the class had to make a presentation on something we were studying. And I was studying at that time Russia, and I was making the presentation. And the professor asked, at the end of it, asked me a question. And I really didn't know the answer to that question. I was hesitant. And I answered it with a very, you know, insufficient kind of meek answer because I didn't know. The professor from the back of the room says, hey, Abza, where the heck are your mother's balls? I was a freshman in college. I mean, oh my. And, 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 yeah. and, and what do you do in front of 50 other kids? You know, you're a first year student, humiliating that was. So, you know what I I said, Dr. Kanakalin, I wasn't aware that she had any balls. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know where that came from. That was a gift from my mother on high. You know what I mean? Because. It just came out and I was lucky and everybody, you know, and my classmates were, you know, cheering and saying, Ray, you know, clapping. But I mean, that just gives you an idea of the level of, you know, people's invasion and pressure towards right. us. And me. Yeah. Yeah. Not just from her, obviously, but from yeah. the outside world. Yeah. That expected yeah. To, yeah. yeah. And one other thing, Katie, we had to share her, you know, we had to share Bella with the world with the women's community, with the, the political community. And it's not always great to feel that you're sharing your mother, you know, with the world. And that is very difficult, as it was for my sister and at times for my father. Mm-hmm. But she loved you guys. I mean, that's my sense of it. She did. And listen, there's no question we both knew that, my sister and I, my father certainly knew it. She was, as she used to say, she was there for all the, of our important events in school, which she was. Hey, and I knew that she did. That's better you know, than I knew, a lot of parents. No, no, I got it. Yeah. And what she gave to us when she was there was just, you know, so much love and, and hassle. I mean, she, mm-hmm. you know, hassled us, but so much love and support, the best she could give, as any mother would. Did she send you off to school with a liverwurst sandwich? <laughs> No, no, no. My mother, honestly, honestly now, this is honest inside information. She didn't cook one meal for me in my lifetime. She warmed up a meal or two, but she never cooked straight out one meal in my lifetime. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's true. It's I kid you not. I'm not exaggerating. That is true. So you can imagine how (laughs) I, you know, it was kind of odd. Um, my father was not a cook either. We used to eat out a lot, you know, and that's cool. Did and when Alice I was young, cook? yeah, Alice, that's what I was just about to say. I mean, she was an incredible cook. Mm-hmm. So we were very fortunate in that respect. Yeah. I mean, that, that really substituted a lot greater than I could have ever wanted, you know. So in commemorating your the centennial, both of your mother's year of birth and the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. We're going to end with uh, this. The woman's vote.
moment has become an indestructible part of American life. It is the homemaker deciding that raising children, cleaning and cooking, and all the other things she does for her family is work that should be courted respect and value. It is the young woman student asserting that she wants to play baseball, carry a torch, major in physics, or become a brain surgeon. It is the working woman demanding that she get the same pay and promotion opportunities as a man. It is a divorced woman fighting for Social Security benefits in her own right. It is the widow embarking on a new career. It is the mother organizing a daycare center. It is the buried wife seeking help. It is the woman running for public office. It's the woman on welfare looking for a decent part of American society. Wow. Wow is right, right? Yeah. Let me just say this. We had in this country had a national women's conference since the, the days of suffrage. And so this was a major big deal. I mean, they had, you know, 20,000 people attend that conference from every state and territory in the country. And my mother, who chaired it as appointed by uh, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, was insistent that this really work on all the major issues of concern to women. And, you know, it was really pretty uh, monumental. And the other thing I want to say is that was how many years ago? You know, 43 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And look at the things that she spoke about. It's unfinished business, uh, unfinished business, because all those things, many, all those things, actually, that she spoke about are still unresolved. Well, Liz Abzug, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome, Katie. I enjoyed it. It was entertaining. It was edifying. <laughs> it was depressing. <laughs> <laughs> all of the above, right? Oh, well, I, I, I enjoyed it. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme song was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Elizabeth Kay books the show. And Alice Hudson is the show's producer. A special thanks to Harvey Firestein for just being an outright genius. Join us next week for the second installment of the 19th Amendment series. I'll be talking to Colleen Jenkins. She's the great-great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a leader in the women's movement a century ago. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredeck Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>